Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. I want to talk for a minute about the function of story in our society, of the arts of creativity, of narrative structure, which is to say, why do we love movies? Why do we love certain novels? Why do we love spectacles like sporting events? Why do we root for teams? Why do we like things like professional wrestling? And I think the answer is that on some level, all these things tell us stories about ourselves. They tell us about the world in which we live, and they show us different ways in which we can be the heroes of our own lives. They show us people who are down on their luck, who come back, who have transformational experiences, who are redeemed. They show us villains who get their comeuppance. They show us a way of being a good person in the world. And we think we're looking at other people's lives, but we're really always internalizing. We're always seeing how are we like them? How can we identify with them? And most of us in our lives have grown up more or less living up to other people's expectations of us. And for some of us, that's fine. That's what we were born to do. They wanted us to go to law school and become a lawyer, so we did, and we're a good lawyer, and we enjoy the law, and we're happy. Some of us, uh, they wanted us to become a doctor, and so we did. Some of us went into, into the family business, and so we did. But I think for a lot of us, a lot of the time, we are living lives that we never really chose, that were chosen for us, that seemed normal. And in this society where we have arguably more freedom to do what we want to do than any other perhaps in history, we're not taking advantage of it. And we're living lives in which we haven't figured out who we are, what's important to us, and who we want to be. And if that's us, to, to some extent, it kind of makes sense that we're not really taking that good care of ourselves. Because for what? For what am I being healthy? For what am I working out? For what am I taking care of my mental health, my physical health, my emotional health, my spiritual health? If I'm not that excited about what I'll be using it for. It's like if you, you know, if you like to ride a motorcycle, you'll take care of your motorcycle. If you don't really care about riding, you'll probably just let it sit in the garage. So what does this have to do with today's guest? Today's guest is a human being, a regular person, and he's also a bigger than life brand. He has been a professional wrestler. He was featured in uh, the Mickey Rourke movie, The Wrestler, came out in uh, 2008. Um, he has had lows lower than most people could ever imagine, from incredible amounts of drug and alcohol addiction, to violent behavior, to what uh, could possibly have been some criminal behavior, self-loathing, suicide attempt, and topping the scales at over 500 pounds, 571 pounds, and in tremendous pain. But also a man with tremendous gifts, physical gifts, big size, great strength, also stamina, agility, and also a gift to express himself musically. And his story is, on the surface very different from, from mine or from most people that I know. 
And yet, just the way that Hollywood makes things big in order to help us see ourselves, Mike Crockett's story is one that I think you'll be surprised how much you resonate with it, how much you identify with parts of it, even if the details may be over the top for you. So with that, I'd like to present one of the most profound, beautiful, and certainly one of the longest podcast interviews I've ever done. Mike Crockett, aka Big Bald Mike, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks, Howard. How are you doing, sir? I'm great. I've been excited about uh, this uh, for a while. And so to, to prepare, I kind of watched some of the uh, or listened to some of the other interviews you've given and read, um, read your story. And so I think that's probably the best place to, to start is, uh, you know, in, in so many ways, you're such a, a apparent contradiction. Uh, based on the you know the buckets the buckets that we like to put people in right so it's we all looking for shorthands so you know if you're a vegan that means you're a you know skinny urban um, goth girl or whatever whatever the buckets um, and you just sort of you know destroy them right and left so I'd love for you to just kind of tell us a little bit about your your backstory about um, growing up being uh, I don't know if you were bald then but being big Mike and uh, where 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 it's taken you okay yeah I grew up in a very small town uh, just southeast of Waco Texas I'm sure everyone's heard of Waco a little town called Marlin and uh, it is um, I mean, they they grew up with them putting your feeding tube chicken fried steak, and uh, you know grits with butter and cheese in them. That's that's how that's how the culinary cuisine goes in Marlin. <laughs> and uh, so I grew up always eating just real high fat Southern eating barbecue brisket, and I just I was always a big kid. So naturally, the parents and the coaches all were in a conspiracy to get me big and fattened up because I was going to be their biggest, baddest football player. So it was like half seconds, half thirds, half fourths. And eventually, I was just consuming so much fat and protein that by the age of 12, I was 215 pounds. And I you know, bench pressing my own body weight. So I was big, but I was also really strong. And it just kind of became a reward system that... You do something physical, you get to eat something. And uh, that led to some pretty bad eating habits that caught up with me. By the time I got in my 20s, I got over 500 pounds. And, um, I mean, I was I was active, but I was doing a lot of bad stuff. Uh, when you weigh 500 pounds, and you're an active person. When I say active, I don't mean I was going for walks. I mean I was jumping off of roofs and uh, crashing through cars. I would, you know, go on a battering ram with my head through drywall because I was so messed up on on alcohol and pills just to be able to cope with the joint pain that I had. And in order to make money, I didn't really have any skill sets. So I would make my money by being destructive. People would pay me to do stunts. And pretty soon it turned into a vicious cycle that just about took my life. Mm -hmm. So in 2008, 
in December of 2008, I actually took a suicide attempt of a concoction of about 40 hydrocodone pills and two bottles of whiskey. And it obviously didn't work. And that's kind of where the whole story starts. That's where my writing uh, process really starts to dig into because the last six years have been one hell of a journey. Um, well, a few months into my healing, uh, and by the way, I, I didn't get professional help. I immediately did things backwards like I always do. And instead of going to rehab, I uh, checked into a wrestling school and became a professional wrestler. I thought, if I'm going to be beating people up all the time, I might as well get paid for it and do it legally. So I became a pro wrestler and started doing really well with that. Had a opportunity to go over to Japan and uh, was just about to take it. And uh, when I met a girl who showed me a video on where my meat comes from, and I think it was a combination of just being vulnerable from, you know, cold turkey and a, a horrendous drug addiction and alcohol addiction. I just stopped all by myself. I was, my guard was down. Let's just put it that way. This big 500 pound, you know, redneck from central Texas barbecue, you know, chew a machine. Uh, immediately I, I gave up meat overnight after seeing that video. It just, it got to me at an emotional level and that's that was in March of 2009, and since then I haven't I haven't had meat. Um, and a few years later, I was able to cut out the dairy and the eggs, and go completely plant strong. And since then, I'm you know I went from 575 pounds down to about 400 where I am now, and I'm still extremely active, and I'm I'm back to lifting weights and uh, spend a lot of time you know writing and. Uh, have an opportunity to tell people my story of a transformation. Wow. So I, I'm, I'm sure we're going to, we're going to get into the transformation in, in more detail. I'd like to sort of, you know, I was thinking in preparing for this interview, like, what am I really curious about? Um, and there's, there's just so many things. So I think I'll just, I'll sort of jump in. I was really curious about how you saw yourself as a child. It's, it seems like, you know, that there was this conspiracy of everyone around you to turn you into this, this, you know, I don't know, linebacker or, or tackle, but some, some sort of, you know, huge creature who is just going to sort of knock people over. I'm wondering how much of that did you sort of internalize about yourself? Like, that's who I am. That's what I'm good for. That, that right there is getting down to the nitty gritty of what I'm starting to finally realize myself. Like, this isn't something I've been able to devote a whole lot of time to because I'm just now finding the answers over the last eight months since I started writing my book. Um, I'm not going to lie. Writing the book has been probably the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. Now, writing is a very, very natural process for me. It comes very easily. And I've, I've got that big, colorful Texan, you know, you know, hillbilly vocabulary that makes it colorful. But where I am in my life, um, it has been, it's been quite a process digging down and examining the thing that you just asked. I, uh, my identity was always being big. 
And, you know, yeah, I mean, you say conspiracy, that's probably a pretty good word. I pretty much, uh, didn't, you know, was very resistant to it. I just loved food. Uh, you know, the, the types of foods I was eating, you know, I mean, I wasn't getting big and strong on, you know, broccoli and, you know, mashed potatoes with no butter or cheese. I mean, I was eating very, very powerfully addictive foods that were, uh, you know, making my body grow. But as long as I lifted weights, I always saw it as a way to be able to eat more and justify because I would burn it off. And it just, it, 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 it definitely instilled some very, very bad habits that I still struggle with to this day because my identity, as it was when I was 12 years old, when I, I guess I first realized that, okay, that's what I'm doing. I'm eating, I'm getting big, and people are respecting me. I still deal with that, you know, here we are, you know, 25 years later because I, um, I'm having a hard time making that transition to be a smaller big bulk mic. My identity has been on being big and strong. And even though I have a goal weight to get down to of about 275 pounds, to me, that's tiny. To mm-hmm. the average person, that's an NFL, you know, linebacker. So I'm trying to get rid of habits and psychology that's been addicted to that identity of being big for, you know, years and years and years. And uh, I'm just now starting to get down and find those answers. And, uh, man, it is a, it's a kind of a scary place, but it's needing to be done. And uh, it's going to allow me the uh, full capability to be able to help people because, um, I mean, that that's some deep stuff that I guess a lot of people, and when talking about transformation, they don't really get to touch on. Right. Well, it's, you know, it's funny because if any, anyone hears your story or just looks at you, you know, one word that comes to mind is just pretty much fearless. Like, you know, throwing yourself off of roofs, getting into fights, the things you've done in your life. You know, I would look at you and say, you know, you're, you're, you're fearless. And yet I, t- I totally get what you're saying about this, this process of looking inward and figuring out what's really going on. Like, that's real courage. Well, thank you, man. It, um, yes, you could definitely say, I, I mean, I, I really had nothing to fear because, uh, for many years, I, you know, I, I suffered from self-hatred, um, to a level that I don't even know how I could relate it. Uh, I think I still struggle with that in some ways. Uh, I'm still trying to learn how to love myself. Uh, I, you know, talked to some, you know, amazingly brilliant people who've helped me along this journey and they've all mentioned at some point self-love. And to me, that it just always seemed something arrogant. I've always been thought of myself as a very, you know, humble person, not trying to, um, I just didn't ever want to come off as being arrogant and by thinking, you know, love myself, love myself. But there's something deeper to that, and I'm still trying to find those answers. But I definitely know that my self-hatred severely outbalanced my self-love. And it is, uh, boy, I wish I would have had some some help with this whenever I was really struggling uh, and could have implemented some better fundamentals. I'd be further along in my journey, but hey, that's how things go. But yeah, I'm not scared of anything, but except for losing my identity. 
for losing who I am because when I got into when I moved to Austin, Texas, ten years ago, um, I was known as the 500-pound guy in overalls who does crazy stunts, breaks beer bottles over my head. I started getting parts in movies. I thought that's why people liked me. Um, I'm still a really big guy, and I'm still really scary to some people. And uh, it's, so it's, it's trying to be able to recognize that. Okay, you're still a big guy. It's okay. You're always going to be a bigger guy. Uh, but it's, there's, there's, there's somewhere in there, there's that deep-seated fear that I'm going to be abandoned and people won't be interested in me if I lose all the weight that I, that I wanted to lose to be you know, healthy and have the ultimate amount of physical stamina to do the things I want to do in life. So sure. Well, you know, here we are having a session right here, you know, and we're, <laughs> we're finding the answers as we talk, brother. Right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm really honored and humbled, you know, that you're, you know, willing and open to kind of go so deep in a, in a, in a public forum. It's, uh, you know, so I'm, when I'm trying to relate to you and in some ways, clearly I can't, you know, I'm a skinny Jewish kid from New Jersey, from the suburbs. <laughs> But but on some you know, and I've never been addicted to to alcohol and pain pills and and you know food in the way that you have. But I feel the the you know, the core addiction that you're describing is addiction to how other people perceive me, and you know, am I okay? And what do I have to do to get other people to approve of me? And I'm totally with you in that. Man, that's that's kind of the core of of everything. To you know, to and I'm imagining you know you growing up in a small town. There were a lot of people who were really on your side, rooting for you, and maybe felt like you know being big and strong and good at sports was your ticket out. Like were people thinking like you're going to be in the NFL or, or you know you're going to you're going to make it? Is it? Would you get any of those messages that were sort of conditional on your strength and appearance? No. Um, and that's what makes it even more puzzling to me. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Back in back in school, I was known as the as the big scary kid that shredded the guitar like you know Stevie Ray Vaughan. I was a I was a guitar player and musician. People had high hopes for me being a rock star, um, which wasn't necessarily a more you know healthy lifestyle. You know since. Many people in rock and roll tend to be addicted to drugs and alcohol, which I eventually found myself being there. So not only did I have, you know, the pressures of becoming, you know, big for sports. You know, when I say, you know, there was pressure on me for sports in a small town, I mean, their religion is almost, you know, equivalent to winning a football game on Friday nights. (laughs) So, you know... I mean, the beers are flying and the chicken fried steaks are grilling. If, uh, you know, you know, a hometown, you know, wins a, wins a football game. But, they, yeah, I never had – I was not a great athlete, Howard. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually pretty pretty clumsy. I was kind of like the big dumb guy, you know. You know, hey, uh, Crockett, go tackle that kid. <laughs> I didn't have that, that athletic prowess that made me – you know, uh, you know, a feared competitor. I was just 300 pound kid that I would tackle you and, and knock you down. Um, but yeah, my ambitions were definitely geared towards being a rock star and, uh, and playing music 
And um, so not only did I have instilled in me this addiction to food in large portions, but as I got into, you know, you know, heavier and heavier into the, you know, hard rock community, I was, you know, popping, I was popping, you know, pain pills like vitamins and the whiskey was flowing like a river of denial through my veins. And um, next thing you know, I'm battling three addictions. So... Oh, so yes, I mean, I'm I'm imagining like, had you grown up in my neighborhood, like you'd probably be, you know, a professional musician, like you know the, the the accidents of birth, um, so often determine who we become, and you know, people who I'm sure listening to you now can hear how sort of thoughtful and intelligent and creative you are, and to to see you applying all that now to kind of you know, turn around the freight train. Like I'm sure, I'm sure there's a lot of people who have your story who are going to die with your story, who are, who are never wow. going to, who are never going to wake up and, you know, be, become the, the captains of their own ship. And it's, it's, it's so inspiring to listen to you talk about it. Cause it's no, it's no small thing to, to turn around that much momentum. Right. Well, much respect to your kind words, sir. Um, that means a lot to me. Um, that's why I have gone on this public vessel. I mean, who wants to sit out and, ex- you know, set out to the world and expose themselves like this? Um, it's a, you know, quite an uncomfortable thing to do sometimes. Now, I, I, I guess that's what I hear from people. For me, everywhere I go, I turn into a walking testimony. I, I, and it happens by accident. You know, I'll be in the grocery store. People see apples and, um, you know, you know, tofu and, you know, quinoa in my grocery cart. And they're like, where's the meat, dude? (laughs) So it automatically starts a a conversation just because of the way I look. I look like this 400-pound tattooed, you know, biker from hell. But yet I've got all these, you know, vegetables in my cart. And it starts something. And then some people want to hear more and you get into the story. So everywhere I go, I end up having to tell people about what I am and, you know, what I do. And so for me, it's very easy to talk about it. But at the end of the day, when I sit back and hear people like you say, oh, man, you're being, you know, really deep and you're, you're hitting on some, some sensitive areas, I, I guess that's right. And I guess it's this, it's my mission to do that because there's so many people out there who are hurting and who are lost. And I feel like, like my story can help people in many ways. I didn't just have one affliction. I had many. I didn't have just one addiction. I had many. So I, I cover quite a few bases. I mean, when it comes to loneliness, depression, you know, suicidal thoughts, um, overeating, you know, gambling compulsively, just, uh, you know, lack of self-worth. It goes, the list goes on and on and on where I, I've covered that. I've lived pretty hard to each category that I claim to have, you know, some experience with. So I think that that ultimately is going to help me when I finally get the book finished, when I get on, you know, the speaking tours or or whatever, however that process works, I'm going to be able to cover all kinds of bases to let people know they're not alone. And if I can make it through all this crap, there is definitely hope for them for whatever they're struggling through. Yeah. So, so that's what I'm hoping ends up being the um, the situation of why I've done all this to myself 
in just a 35-year period. Right. So let's uh, let let's move on to the transformation. Um, you said you had in, in in March of two thousand nine, your guard was down, and you you met a girl who pointed you towards some videos about animal cruelty. Yes. What was you know, most people when they see something like that, their immediate reaction is defensiveness, right? What was your what was your immediate reaction when you started seeing? The, the the connection between you know the way we eat and the way animals are treated. Chris, a great question. This is one of my favorite ones to answer. So I'm going to go back and give you a little bit of my apprehension that I experienced before. So when we first met, you know, we met at the gym, and I told her I was a pro wrestler, and I was eating you know, five to 600 grams of protein a day. Cause she, you know, this first one question she wanted to know, like, what do you eat? You know I mean? I must, I think I may have even been wearing a, uh, one of my hometown barbecue shirts, you know, there was like a pig face on it, you know? So it must've, it must've been something that got her, you know, being provoked to, to want to tell me about, cause you know, she was, you know, lifelong vegetarian. Um, and, you know, for me, I was just kind of, just kind of chuckled about it. You know, she made a few comments, you know, you know, about, you know, where your meat comes from. I just kind of laughed it off, you know, typical, you know, <laughs> who's going to convince a 500-pound pro wrestling redneck Texan from hell that meat is a bad thing? So I just kind of laughed it off, you know, and, but it took actually getting a video while my guard was down. Um, she was worried about the amount of meat I was consuming. I mean, I was eating... There's a calculation that I've that I've come up with that I use in in the talks I'm doing to give people a perspective of just how much meat I ate in a year. In 2008, for instance, uh, my band we were part of a corporation, so we had to turn in receipts every year. Just off my Jack in the Box receipts alone, in 2009 when I was getting ready to turn them in, I was able to determine that I ate from Jack in the Box alone about 1,600 pounds of hamburger, you know, and then you, I, I, you know, I added up weekly how much, how many pounds of brisket and how many pounds of sausage I was eating. And it came to over 2,600 pounds of meat in just 2006. Now the average human, uh, or I guess I should say the average American per year eats about 275 pounds of meat. So there's a comparison right there. I was eating, you know, more, almost 10 times the amount the average person and uh that's why i was i mean howard i was on death's doorstep and probably didn't even know it i mean i, I felt good because i quit doing drugs and i'd stopped drinking and i thought i was eating healthier i was eating chicken breasts and brown rice uh i was losing a little weight i about 475 pounds at this point but uh yeah it was uh quite an eye-opener when her concern was that desperate that she sent me a video of a cow having its throat cut and blood out. And it just, it hit me. And, and that was it. There, there was no, I was actually in new Orleans uh, celebrating something. I can't really remember what, but I know I was eating uh, about 15 pounds of fried seafood. And I got this email when I got back to my hotel and there was no, okay, 
I'm going to do this in a week or I'm going to start weaning down. It was immediately, I can never, ever consume the flesh of another, another being. Why the hell have I been tricked into thinking that these animals volunteer themselves for death? I was a typical person that was just conditioned to think that these that these chickens jump into the slaughter factory with a smile on their face because they think that that's their purpose in life. I was oblivious. I was walking through every day, life eating my you know forty fifty chicken McNuggets, you know, thinking that hey, that's just how the world works. But whenever I was forced to examine where it really comes from. Once your eyes are opened and your brain allows your heart to feel for the first time, man, there is just, immediately it's like the hero part kicks in. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'm done. What next? How do I do this? And it took me a while to figure out how to do it because there was not a lot of literature on how a 500-pound pro wrestler is supposed to go vegetarian overnight. Um, and so that's that's where the last six years have uh, you know you know really come into I've become educated beyond whatever I never thought I would have such an education in uh, you know food and like how it works in the human body and protein because uh, I was a big believer in you know I needed it to be strong and tough and that is not the case because I have been the strongest and had by far had the most endurance and stamina of my entire life. I mean, I have more stamina and endurance now at 400 pounds than I did when I was a 240 pound, you know, this is something I could, I could go on and on and on and on about. I'm just trying to, <laughs> trying to convince my answers down. This is, this is where the passion starts to come out because I have that, I have that want to wake other people up so bad that I'm just trying to make sure I say all the right triggering things in a sound bite. Because if if someone's teeter tottering right now, I mean you, I, I mean I think it's almost a, a duty that people don't walk around being blind. I feel like if anybody knows the truth, they should most definitely, in the most polite, brilliant way, bring it to other people's attention without judging. Like I don't judge people. I mean I, you know, I kept walking to people all the time in life and. You know, they, they know I'm a vegan, but I guess I just have a distracting way because I don't, I don't walk around looking like, you know, I'm thumping it and I'm going to shove it down their throat. But people do know I will speak the truth and be very blunt and use my colorful language. And, uh, you know, I will, I will let them know. But, um, that, that, that's the mission, Howard. This, this is, this is what my life's purpose is, is giving back because for 29 years of my life, I was a take from the animals and also from the environment because the, you know, one of the things I've gotten into, you know, in the, these last few years of studying what I'm doing is that the environmental damage as a result of the meat industry is uh, something that just can't be ignored. And uh, singly as a person, I was doing the amount of damage of 10 people. So I feel like I have a lot of giving back to do to offset the damage that I've done. And uh, that's why I'm so fired up and passionate about being able to share the story to get people to stop doing it so we can reduce the amount of suffering that we cause to ourselves, to the animal kingdom, and then to the environment ultimately, which, you know, it, 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 it like everyone is 
responsible for this together. So, wow, I'm I'm hearing so many things in that story. You know, one of them is when you you, you talked about your challenges and now you know loving yourself. That the the language I hear you speaking now is remorse as opposed to guilt. Like you feel really sorry for the twenty nine years of being, as you call it, being a taker. And yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't hear you beating yourself up. I hear you, you know, committing, looking forward to to all the good you can do. And that's you know, that's hard for for me when I see things that I've done in the past to not sort of carry on the guilt and feel like, well, my job now is to just beat myself up and make myself feel bad. And I'll do it in all the addictive ways I know how and I can get away with. It seems like that was a big shift for you. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up. Because, you know, um, you know, just without going into it too heavily, because, you know, I don't want to spoil all the, you know, the, the, the jaw-dropping moments of the book, but you know, in order to fuel my drug addiction, I mean, I mean, when I said I was taking, you know, hi, you know, hydrocodone pills, I was addicted to these things called Narco 1025s, which was 10 milligrams of hydrocodone, 325 milligrams of acetaminophen, and uh, the street value of that was about $15 a pill back in 2007-2008. I moved to Austin originally for the drugs because I heard they were giving them away like Easter baskets at the airport upon arrival. And so I, I had to go get some of this because uh, my body was just that broken down and I was going to do anything it took to get my addiction covered. I mean, I had about a $200, $300 a day, depending on the day, drug habit. Uh, do the math of what that adds up to weekly and monthly. Uh, I was working security at a bar during that time and I was playing in a, a Southern metal band that made, you know, a hundred dollars a night. I obviously was getting my drugs from criminal means. Mm. So I feel like I have a little bit of that mentality instilled in me of, of experienced what people who do bad things do. I never set out and thought, you know, my life would, you know, come to that where I would be, you know, I felt more guilt for, Okay, another way to phrase it. I don't feel guilt for the the damage that I did in my life. Because for me, the hero implement is, what can I do now to fix it? The guilt I feel is from the torment of tearing my family apart, of tearing my friends apart, of stealing from people, from conning people into getting my fix. So I, I definitely know the difference between what guilt and remorse is. And for some reason, I'm luckily, I was able to, and I don't know how it happened, but I was definitely able to attach remorse to the transformation. And I can leave the guilt in my past to where this day, I'm still trying to make amends and make things right with people that I loved and cared about. And, um, and I think that from, I mean, oh God, this is going to sound bad. I'm not trying to glamorize the criminal behavior that I had, but I feel like if someone has a criminal mentality, even of the, the most petty kind, which is like, you know, taking $20 from your mom's purse or whatever, most people, they're inherently going to feel guilty for doing stuff. Uh, so many junkies who will admit it or probably won't admit it, they all feel guilt. 
it's that's why people, you know, they 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 do the drunk dialing thing, you know, you get wasted and just you don't you want to talk to people and you apologize for the way you are. You're going to change the next day. These patterns, um, as humans, we're always looking for acceptance, and when we do something wrong, we want to. You know, we want people to forgive us for what we do. Mm. It, 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 at least, I think a good majority of people who who do bad things. They so the guilt that I always felt from living my lifestyle and from from hurting others to get what I needed uh, or what I thought I needed. It was um, definitely very, very different than you know waking up and realizing, oh my god. This is the damage that I've done for 29 years of my life. I'm, like I said, I'm still trying to figure out how exactly I associated one with the other, but definitely there was a remorseful thing, taking action. What can I do to fix this? I mean, I, I mean, I was basically telling the world, like, what do I got to do? I mean, I've done worse than most people, um, you know, when it comes to, you know, damaging animals and the planet. Um, Please suggestions, you know, and I was I was like that for the first few years of my transformation. Um, so I, I'm I'm lucky in that sense that yes, I was able to attach remorse as a as an emotion to take action instead of feeling guilt because you know feeling guilt over something like that. Uh, I mean that I, I think that could take you into some very deep dark places, and I think that some people who who get into animal rights. I think they're, the, the self-guilt that they perpetuate puts them in, into a bad position where they're, they're not really effective as a communicator for the lifestyle that they live. They, you know, they, they, they hold themselves up and you know, maybe a lot of that self-hatred you know, fuels some of their, their rants. I, you know, I'm, I'm talking about like in social media, you know, you know, vegans definitely don't always have a good name because people are very... Um, they don't think before they type and, you know, they can say some pretty hurtful stuff, not meaning to, but I think it's because of the guilt that they felt for the, the, the lifestyle that they lived and knowing that they caused so much damage. They want people to stop eating and they're going to shove it down their, they're going to shove all the info they have down someone else's throat in order to, you know, either make themselves feel better temporarily or because they're, they're, they feel that they're commissioned to do that from their own hatred or their guilt, whatever it is. It's it's sort of an interesting thing to examine when you think about it, but um, I wish more people would definitely look at it as as a remorse thing because then it comes from a standpoint of love and what can I do to fix it, and uh, I think it ends up being a more pleasant experience because every little action you take actually does matter. You know, if you just even cut meat a little bit out of your diet you're already doing better by not support, you know, you're doing better. Like you're saving some animals, you're saving a certain amount of gallons of water. And when you, when people can see those little small incremental changes that the, that the, the positive actions they're taking actually start to add up. Then naturally, I think that they're going to want to do more. Yeah. They're going to want to, you know, you know, go heavier into it. Um, because there's going to be a, a you know, a greater reward. It, at least that's how it works for me. And, I think, I think kind of instinctively, I uh, I help people think that way because my success rate for the amount of people that I've you know helped go to this lifestyle 
they have seen it from the same point of view that I have. And I've been lucky in that regard. Well, in, in a lot of ways, in my experience, guilt is a lot easier for me to manage than remorse, right? Because when I feel guilt, I will numb it out with something, whether it's, you know, Facebooking or uh, overeating or blaming other people. Like, you know, qu- quickly when I feel guilty, I want to, whoever I think is making me feel guilty, I want them to stop, so I'll make it their fault. Whereas where I'm feeling remorse, there's nowhere to go but inward. And then... Like it's on me. I haven't. I haven't punted. You know, I'm. I'm sitting with, um, with what I did, and the only, the only way forward is to take some some action based on love, based on whatever the opposite, in you know, the opposite engine was that that made me do the thing that I uh, am regretful about. Very well said, my friend. Very 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 uh, well thought out answer too, as opposed to my you know, 25 minute rant on it. <laughs> no, no, I'm really I'm still, I'm still trying to learn how to, how to put things together, you know, get to the point a little better, but like what you said is, is truth and power. Um, well, I'm just, I'm just I reflecting mean, back. I mean, I, I'm, I'm loving your answers. I'm loving the stories and you know, you've, it's like, we're, you know, you're not very different from, from most people, right? We're, we're all, we're all brought up as takers we're all numbing out and, and ducking responsibility to some extent. Everyone will, will do the little things they need to to get their fix. You're, you were given the gift of living an outsized life so that we can look at it and really see you know, our own selves reflected back in a way that we can't miss if, if, if we have the guts to do it. You know, there's nothing you're talking about. There's no... There's nothing you've said that I go, oh, I wouldn't have done that, <laughs> you know. Right. So, which brings That's me to great. to another question because I'm, I'm I'm really curious um, about this. You have been a pro wrestler, right? You you were in the the wrestler, the movie with Mickey Rourke, and you you rehabbed yourself in pro wrestling school. Um. So my first question is like when I was thinking about talking to you, I wasn't sure who I would be talking to, whether I would be talking to, you know, Mike, the guy or big bald Mike, the, the brand and the persona. Um, do you, how, how do you like, I don't even know what the question is, but just sort of what's, what's, what's your, what's your, you laughed. So what's, what, what are you thinking when I say that? That's, that's a, a, a good thing. Did you think of it like that? That means I've that means I've done well in uh in communicating, you know, the people you know, who I am. There's still a little mystery there, so that's cool. <laughs> uh, we as a I've always been well. Okay, let me take that back. I was always like Ferdinand the Bull growing up. I don't know if you remember that story sure. or your listeners sure. remember that story. Sure. You know the. You know, you know, little shy bull. He just, you know, he was the biggest and the strongest, but he just wanted to sit in the field and just smell the flowers. <laughs> that was me, up until my drug addiction in 2004 started. Um, I was always the introspective, quiet, deep thinker. I was always the biggest and strongest dude in the room, but I was also the most passive, gentle one at the same time. Uh, I just, I never looked for trouble. Once the drugs started getting pumped in my system, the introspective, gentle giant that everyone knew disappeared. And I became the loud, gregarious, 
hellbilly that was going to make sure that no one had a chance to forget who I was. Mm. And since then, I have maintained that persona, but I've, I've been able to sneak little parts of my past of being that more gentler, kinder uh, persona back. So I, I, I have been told that, you know, being with me in my presence is sort of a roller coaster because I'm really quiet and all of a sudden, a boom, like here comes this big freight train, this brand, you know, Big Bob Mike that I've, you know, been, you know, developing over the last 10 years. And it's just me. That's me in my everyday life. Um, I'm not walking around. Okay, for instance, most people think that when I walk into a room that basically I, I just do a somersault through the air, crash for a tape, through a table, do a front handspring up on top of a stage, grab the microphone from whoever was talking, pick them up, throw them in the crowd and say, this is my room now. I think that's what people's assumption of how I am is going to be. <laughs> but it's it, it's very much um, a cross between being quiet and being that. So <laughs> that's uh, basically it. what I can tell you is that I'm turned on all the time. Like Big Bald Mike is turned on like constantly. Like that switch is there. I'm always in that mode because that's just, that's just who I am. Um, yeah. I, yeah. Be, being a pro wrestler, you know, getting into movies, like these are little things that are exciting to people. And it's, there's a certain curiosity there where people want to know how did that happen? Where'd that come from? And believe it or not, I mean, it, it allows me to, you know, to, you know, remember like my, like the way I think of myself is I'm this, you know, this big loud character, but yet, you know, I'm sitting here on a podcast of a very, you know, renowned, distinctive, you know, PhD, Howard Jacobson. Like, how did I get here? I guarantee you, back when I was in my, my, my crazy drug-induced days, I would have never thought that I'd be sitting here sharing my story with an intellectual. Like, this is, this is crazy to think, but this is where I've been able to get in life. And it's really, really cool, and it makes it fun. Big Bald Mike is a fun-loving dude. Mike Crockett, my real name, I'm the same thing. It's all... I'm just one big package that walks around. I want to love everyone. I want to inspire them. I want to make them laugh. And then I want to tell them some things that are going to shock them and make their jaw drop. (laughs) It sounds like you're, you're finding your way to, to a really sort of easy, happy, satisfying integration. You couldn't have said it any better, sir. So, so about pro wrestling, which, you know, a lot of people are fascinated by, have a lot of misconceptions about. I'm fascinated by the fact that you used pro wrestling as your rehab. You know, I could just imagine like, you know, the Betty Ford Clinic, like learning from you. <laughs> you know, like this, this becomes the, the new standard of care. But what, what, was, oh, what, what was it about that experience that you, that you intuitively knew and were right about that this was going to break that spiral and give you something to replace it with? I have to first say, uh, please do not become a pro wrestler if you are struggling with an addiction and you think that Please don't follow my lead with that. I have to disclaim that right now. It is the worst idea you could possibly do. For one, uh, wrestling, what you see on TV, um, it's not what you think. You know, people think pro wrestling is this big soap opera that's staged, and, you know, to an extent it might be, 
but I mean, I got my freaking neck injured, uh, basically broken. I have a, a, a spinal fusion, in my cervical vertebrae and I have constant chronic pain from it. Um, it's real, you know, I've separated my collarbones from doing it. I used to, I've broken people's noses and I broke some guy's sternum. I mean, it's, it's real. It hurts. Uh, how I got into it. Okay. So, so in, you know, you know, without getting into much of, of 2008 and what it means because the, you know, the suicide attempt at the end of the year, at the first of the year of 2008 was when I was really starting to thrive here in Austin and, and I was getting popular and I was just starting the, the, basically the, the pill popping went into high gear because I found a dealer to cut me, you know, a good break. If I sold it, you know, I, I'd get a break on the pill. So naturally I was able to start affording to take more. And right around that time, in, I think it was January of 2008, my buddy who was a WWE wrestler, he actually was training mixed war for the part in the movie, the wrestler, uh, at this, uh, this wrestling school up in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And, you know, we'd been in contact, like my band had, had, had wrote his uh, uh, theme song for his WWE entrance. And um, he was just uh, really cool. And he said, hey, man, he goes, I'm going to be awesome if you could be in this movie. He goes, if you could find a way to get up to New Jersey, he goes, you could be in this. He goes, uh, he goes I'll make sure that you get featured. So anyways, we did, um, like me and my my um, uh, uh, music producer, who I was, we were recording our record. He had some contacts in New York, so he got us a place to stay, and we did. We, we flew up there, and I got in the movie, got a good featured scene, and uh, but I had no idea what the movie was about. I had no idea that it was about this, you know, man's struggle. I knew that it was going to be a a redemption move for Mickey Rourke and, and reigniting his career. But, you know, at the time, I, I didn't have a script. I didn't know how the movie was going. Well, in December of that year, you know, 11 months later, after trying to, you know, end my life, uh, I, I don't really remember December to January bridging from 2008 to 2009. I mean, I mean, I was still, I mean, it's, it's gruesome. I, I go into detail in the book of the, the physical problems I was experiencing, so I'll save some mystery for that. But let me just say it was, from what I remember of that 30-something days, and actually just yesterday was December 8th. That was my six-year anniversary of, uh, and, and, and I, of attempting to kill myself. And actually, of all the years since then, this was the most peaceful, positive one. So I think I've really reached a point in my life where I've accepted this is what I've done. This is the man I've become today. And, uh, you know, it's time to start helping people. So here I am a day after, which I don't remember this day six years ago at all, because I was probably asleep, you know, covered in vomit um, in my chair. But here I am. I'm surviving. I'm thriving today. And I'm able to tell you this story. All right. So back on track. Um, I, I, I got into, uh, I went in and out of comas and I, I was stuck in this chair. I couldn't get up. Um, I don't remember a week, maybe two weeks before I was able to get out of the chair. My cell phone had died and, um, you know, I had no way and no one had known I'd moved, you know, closer to my drug dealer down in South Austin. So nobody had known my new address. So no one knew to come check on me. Um, 
anyways, um, I blocked out Christmas, New Year's, but around the first week of January in 2009, my phone started blowing up, you know, and people said, oh my God, we just saw you in The Wrestler. Now, I had just, you know, talked to some friends and they got me, they were going to put me in this, uh, this rehab center in Waco, Texas. I was going to go back home and they were going to help me get checked in the rehab. And, uh, so I knew like in three or four days, you know, I was going to be picked up because I couldn't drive. I had such bad vertigo and I got, I had a lot of neurological problems. And, uh, so anyways, I uh, was waiting to get picked up, but when my phone started blowing up saying we saw you in the wrestler, I decided to go check out the movie. So I, I called a taxi, had them come pick me up. There was only one theater in Austin downtown that was showing it. And just, I mean, yeah, of course, I was a little excited. I, I wanted to see my part, but I also wanted to see the story. And I guess everything Mickey Rourke was going through in his life, like he was just at the end of his ropes, and he just was living his, uh, his life just hard and just with pain. And I mean, I, I related to that so much that immediately I said, the hell with rehab, I'm going to become a professional wrestler. I remember walking out of that theater on 6th Street, downtown Austin and uh, immediately asking people like, you know, who wants to see me become a pro wrestler? I'm going to take my life back. And people started cheering me right there on 6th Street. I mean, it was like the funniest thing, like a Rocky Balboa moment. And I mean, it was it was silly. Someone recommended, hey, there's a wrestling school just over, just over yonder. And I realized the wrestling school was like less than a mile from my apartment. <laughs> so it worked out. I, I just, I jumped into it full force, started beating people up. And yeah, next thing you know, I was down in Mexico, you know, fighting three luchador wrestlers at once, getting hot sauce, spitting my eyes, picking people up, throwing them out of the ring. I mean, I mean, beating the hell out of them. I mean, it was, it was my therapy. It was my release. I mean, all of the pain and suffering that I'd had for that four-year-long drug addiction and the, a lot of the self-hatred that I felt, everything came out, and I was able to legally beat the crap out of people and get paid for it. But it had a very short, you know, uh, you know, life in the, in the business. Um, for one, I passed on the, on the opportunity to go to Japan I got the opportunity to go to Japan after being a wrestler for less than a month. When you're a 500-pound, you know, character like I was, and you can move, I was uh, turning some heads, but I I decided to pass on it because um, I wanted to uh, I wanted to experience love with that girl who changed my life. And then when I got my neck injury and almost got paralyzed from that i said this is a good time to get out so i just i'm left with some good memories of it but yeah i am officially officially retired from that lifestyle but that's that was that was the starting factor and it inspired you know a reality show it inspired a documentary where you know all this stuff is still you know you know you know it hasn't been released yet but it definitely helped put me out there and luckily i've had really really brilliant, caring people who have come along my path um, over the last six years and guided me to get me to the point to where I'm now telling you the story. So I have a, a, a kind of a, 
maybe out of left field question, but I'm curious about your decision to get tattoos. Because you talked about, you know, being Ferdinand the Bull and being happy to be sort of left alone to smell the flowers. And then you talked about your professional wrestling character and, you know, the big bald mic and, you know, really turning heads. You know, you, you've, you've made some decisions in your life to, to stand out physically, to, to, to get attention. So t- tell me a little bit about um, the tattoos. Oh, boy. Okay. So, if you encounter me walking down the street, you're going to see, first thing you're going to look at my tattoos is that they are not, you know, butterflies, bunnies, <laughs> cute things like you might expect would come from a 400-pound animal lover. I'm covered in some scary tattoos, like my right arm is covered in this this skull graveyard that goes up into my head. I mean, I'm, I'm actually tattooed on the back of my head with these flames, with these skulls, that that graveyard represents the pain and suffering of all the lives that I think that I may have caused damage to when I was a drug dealer. Um, it's just that that's sort of like really deep personal guilt that I still struggle from. I don't talk to a lot of people about, but yes, I uh, initially... My very first tattoos were on the inside of my forearms. Now, was I trying to get attention? Subconsciously, probably yes. I actually got my first tattoos as a warning for other people to stay away from me. Um, being Ferdinand the Bull, being exploited to always be the, the crazy redneck, I would do it, but in a way, I wanted people to, like, leave me alone. I wanted people to fear me because that way they wouldn't ask me to do things. They wouldn't be interested in talking to me. That was a big part of the, the self-hatred of my, that I experienced my entire life, which I get into it in the book. I'm still going back and adding details, too, as I discover new things about, I did this. What was the meaning behind that? Oh, man, this is something I'm going to have to write a whole chapter about now. Mm-hmm. But... My first tattoos, uh, you can't see them unless I really show them to you or I'm standing there and you read them. But I'll put it to you like this. On the inside of my left forearm, in pretty plain letters, it says F them. Hmm. On the inside of my other uh, right forearm, it says eat. Uh-huh. Uh, you, you know, I'm trying to you know keep it clean for your radio show. But so F them and eat F. So that was not Ferdinand the Bull. That was not Cuddly Teddy Bear, Big Bald Mike. That was stay the hell away from me. I'm a dangerous person. And I initially got into tattoos for that reason. And then over the years, I just started adding, you know, more skulls. And I tried to, you know... You know, I I have given very little thought to why I got the tattoos, but my first one, you know, ones were those warnings on my forearms to people. And I had to live with those forever. And, um, you know, but but at the same time, I don't regret it. Because, believe it or not, the way I look, my presence covered in skulls and profanities, I mean, can I walk into a church and, uh, you know, keep people from shivering? 
I don't know. Uh, I don't go into churches very often because of that reason. You know, I'm always, you know, afraid of, you know, I don't want, I don't like to make people uncomfortable. But what this allows me to do is it allows me to reach people. And I never thought that that would happen in a million years. Like the things that I've done to my body physically from my, you know, giant size to the, to the certain way I've been told I have like a, like a prison look. It, it, I accept that because that's, that, that's helped me get parts in movies. Like I, I like I, I just did a movie, you know, with the director, Richard Linkletter, who's, uh, oh, wow. you know, um, yeah, he made the movie Dazed and Confused and, you know, a few, a few others, you know, I got the role specifically because I look the way I do. Cause I have that, that prisoner badass look. So, but I, in order to take the, the scariness away, I find ways to make it like an Adam Sandler movie. If he features a a big, scary, giant-type guy, it's usually going to be a comical situation. So I've learned to be able to use that to disarm people's fear of me, and it is, in a strange way, Howard, allowed me to reach people that, you know, not just for, you know, the vegan lifestyle, but also just for just people... I mean, I, I can't. I, I, I haven't even been begun to get into all the areas that I've been able to help people from different lifestyles, and a lot of it has to do with the way I look this way. I look like I'm gonna, you know, cut you, but yet I just want to hug you. And you'd be, I mean, after I gave that, like when I spoke at the same conference you were at at the uh, food and health event that Rip Esselstyn hosted. Uh, I mean, that was a very clean cut audience. I felt very, very out of place there, you know? And when I got off the stage after sharing my story for 10 minutes, I got swarmed by, you know, cute old ladies wanting to give me a hug. And, <laughs> you know, it was just the, the, just the funniest thing. This is what my life has become. And I love it. I, I love the fact that I, I'm able to, you know, you know, let people feel accepted by, you know, a big scary looking gorilla like me. I, I can't, it, 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 you know, it, it, it's, it's fun. It, it, it's fun the way it's working. That's a great distraction from the real pain and suffering behind the reason I look like I do. Mm-hmm. It's so that's, so now we're getting into some deeper stuff there. Like, I'm glad and very thankful that I'm able to disarm people. Otherwise, I would be walking around as this guy who looks like he just got out of the joint and people wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. And I'd be back to feeling very alone. And who knows where that would be. Probably somewhere, probably someplace bad. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that you t- use the word prison, because I, when I was thinking about the way you were describing why you got your first tattoos, it, 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 I was thinking, well, it's like Mike wanted to put himself in prison in a way to protect people from him. Like, keep... <laughs> You know, put up bars, put up walls to keep keep wow. other people safe. And and uh, you know, initially when you were thinking that, I was starting to feel really sorry for you for like, well, you can't sort of get rid of those, or it'd be very you know hard or painful. But it feels like as you describe it now, it's part of the transformation that you're you've taken these symbols and you've you've completely reversed their initial uh, intention. Which now it's it's drawing people to you. It's getting you hugs from from sweet little old ladies. It's 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 do, it's kind of doing the opposite of a prison. It's making you um, 
much more making making you much more accessible to to people that you wouldn't have been able to get in touch with otherwise. That is really cool what you just said. It is um, now that I think about it, that is that is that is real deal truth that I don't think you could state any more clear or more. You can't. You couldn't said that any better, sir. That was. I was in a prison to myself. That then I was just. I, I can't even add anything on top of that. Like what you said is the truth. That that's that's exactly. I think what happened and what is happening as a result of this. I mean, I know you said you don't you don't go into churches much because you don't want to sort of scare or offend people, and I don't I don't know. Uh, at all, you know, your religious sensibilities. And I, I don't think I have a particularly a traditional view of religion, but the word that keeps coming back to me, tapping me on the shoulder during this call is grace. Um, you know, that you know, all these different events and coincidences and happenings, um, and I suppose they happen to all of us all the time. Like there's always, a, you know, there's always a knock on the door for us to wake up, but the grace came from, you know, your willingness to open your mind and your heart to the knocking at various points, you know, from, from when you were able to watch that first video, from, um, you know, from, from all the decisions you've made. Um, it's, it, you know, I'm thinking about the, the song itself, you know, uh, from, from being in prison to, to being free and what you've changed is, is all in your mind. It's, it's just really uh, inspiring to me to hear your story. Thank you. I have had, yeah, I, um, I'm not really a religious person. When I say not really, like I know that sounds kind of on the fence. Basically, I'm so open-minded and so loving of everyone that, like, I accept all views and faiths because what someone needs, because I wouldn't want someone knocking what I do, because that's that, that's my credo, like that's my foundation in life. Um, I'll, I, I, if someone invites me to church, I'll go to church with them. Um, I, I I don't get anything out of it more than just the. Uh, I, I love the experience that people can have in a church. Like I think it's really interesting. Uh, I always feel better when I go. When someone reads from you know the Bible or something, it doesn't do anything for me. I, I don't, I don't agree with a lot of it because it, it's it's not something that it has much meaning to me because I found the answers for everything that I did on my own. Uh, that's not a knock to religion. I'm just saying that it didn't work for me uh, because I actually felt you know like it, it hindered me in a lot of ways and kept me in fear. Um, I don't go into that stuff very much because that's an extremely delicate topic with people. I'll just so I'll say that like what saved me was my friends, uh, the people that cared about me. Uh, and when I first, you know, um, actually a um, there's a doctor, uh, you know, just around here in my area who uh, you know has a religious you know, theme to her practice, you know, her name is Dr. Carney and her and her husband, Sean, you know, wanted to do some Bible study with me and, um, and wanted to help me trans, you know, transition to a whole food, you know, plant-based diet. Um, you know, they were the directors for all the engine two immersions. So, you know, you know, you know, initially, you know, when I went plant strong completely, you know, I didn't 
you know, I didn't know how to go meet Rip and how to get advice from him. So, you know, I, I took advice of these, you know, you know, these people in, um, you know, the carnies, and, and and it was really, it was it was eye opening for them because it felt like, um, here I am going back to church, um, and uh, I, you know, I don't necessarily know if I like this or not, but I gave it a shot and was very welcome and accepting them because to them, religion is their entire life. And that's a beautiful thing. To me, it's it's something very different. You know, for me, it's uh, my life is being surrounded by the people that I love, being surrounded by people that are in pain or hurting, that I can use some humor or I can use some of my crazy stories to make them, you know, you know, not be so focused on their misery. That's that's my gift. So that's therefore I'm just I'm just all inclusive and and, and accepting and understanding of anyone from any faith from any type of belief structure. And I even love my haters. I have a lot of people out there, you know, you put yourself out there in, in the social media, uh, you know, people, you know, you open yourself to criticism. I love that stuff. I love people bashing me and saying the crazy things. I don't go looking for it. Like I don't make it a point to read everything that people are talking about me, but I love people being a naysayer. I mean, some people don't like the criticism of me. I'm like, bring it on. And I end up being a, a very good friend to people who don't like me. Uh, at least I, I, I want to like them. I want to love them because they have, the, at least, because people who stand by their own convictions and have the guts to say what's on their mind, those are the people in life I really am drawn to. And in some strange occurrences, it has allowed me to make an impact on people that maybe were just suffering from some self-hatred themselves and they felt the need to put someone else down that was doing something positive. And as a result, they were able to make a breakthrough and then we've been able to be friends from it or, or acquaintances. So that's, that's the way I view life. Nothing is, nothing has to be pain and hate. It doesn't have to be that way. Luckily I have this, crazy skill set. Maybe it was from the way I've lived my life and I've done things ass backwards than most people, but it is, it has allowed me to think that, that there is always a way to resolve a problem and you can do it civilly and with love, but you can still do it with an edge, you know, and that's, that's why I'm able to continue to do what I do what I'm doing. Right on. Well, you know, I, I think that as religions go, I love everybody is a pretty darn good one. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. You know, and I'm and I'm guessing that there's not there's not many things people can say about you. You look at it and say, "Well, I I haven't thought that myself." You know, I haven't felt. I is that all you got? I can, you know, that once you go, <laughs> once once you go inside, it's like, yeah, okay, you know, there's some truth there. <laughs> like it doesn't uh, the the resistance to the truth or to, to perception is what hurts. Not just sort of saying, gee, I wonder if that's true. Am I really that way? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, everyone can relate to someone else in some way. Uh, for a while I, I went to a few Toastmaster meetings, which is this little speaking club of people who, who try to learn uh, a skill set for public speaking. Um, and I, you know, once again, just, just like the food and health, conference a few months ago that you were at with all these other intellectuals and, you know, you know, leaders of the plant-based movement. Um, I've 
where I naturally feel very out of place. I, uh, at these Toastmaster meetings, I ended up being able to relate to people that were bankers and people that were, uh, okay, well, for instance, I was talking to this guy who was, you know, he's a banker. And he was saying that something about my story he was able to relate to. And I was able to relate to him because I'm like, you're a banker. I almost robbed a bank one time for my drug fix. <laughs> and it turned into this uh, this uncomfortable laugh between like five or six people who overheard it. And the next thing you know, the room is just like cracking up. And the energy completely changed for me just saying something off the cuff like that, that normally would be a pretty scary thing. But I was able to turn it into a humorous situation and, and and help this person who had a that they had confidence issues in themselves. They're like, how can you get up there and just talk? How can you just go places and just tell your story and you don't care what people think about you? And I said, you answered your question. Don't worry about what people think about you. And you know we'll uh, you know we'll figure out the rest of the stuff. But so here, here I was relating to someone who had you know six figure salary, nice car nice clothes. Here I am. I had holes in my shoes. You know, uh, you know, I'm on food stamps at the time. I, uh, you know, and this is all just like a year ago. Mm-hmm. So it's just the journey never stops. Um, it just, uh, there's always an opportunity to relate to someone. And so therefore I'm not hesitant to go on, you know, like for instance, it would make sense. Like if I went on a podcast for like, you know, bikers from hell, you know, doing good for people who, yeah, like it would make sense for me to put myself in that market. Instead, I'm on, you know, I'm talking to Howard Jacobson, you know, you know, PhD, you know, co-author of whole, this is, this is like a huge honor for me, but here I am. I'm, put, I'm sitting here talking with people that I didn't ever really expect to have conversations with because if you put us side by side in a room, we look very different and, you know, the judgments can be made by others that, yeah, this will never go anywhere. But throughout this last hour, you've, you've, you've helped me just by asking certain questions that have engaged me in talking about things that, you know, made me have to think a little bit. And uh, this has just been a completely positive experience and just goes to show that, yeah, I, I got to continue to get out there and talk with people because not only will I help others, I'll help myself along the way because it just reinforces the foundation of the good things that I've done along this journey over the last six years. So just, mm. just, just, just saying some love and sending you some love and respect for, for helping me opening up those gates. This is the first time I've also talked this in depth about anything uh, in quite a while. Um, just, just real quickly. And, and when I started writing the book um, earlier in the summer, of this year in 2014. Um, like I said, it put me into a very dark place because mm. my editor, James McWilliams, who, you know, has written like six books and he's a, you know, PhD professor of history at a major university. Uh, you know, uh, to find myself having someone that's critiquing me like that. Uh, you know, he was, he, he saw my initial transcript and he's like, you're going to need to dig a lot deeper than that, buddy. Mm-hmm. And, in doing so, it made me face a lot of the things that I've gotten into talking with you about, but it's helped me get the answers that I've been searching for after being lost for so many years. So this has all just been a good experience, and, um, you know, I definitely definitely am grateful for this opportunity. Oh, well, so... so you got anything else? Of course, I'm not trying to wrap it up, but if you've got anything else, I'm 
more than happy to answer. I could do this all day. Okay, I, I wanted to check in with you about time because we have uh, we've gone over what I asked for. So I do I do have a couple more things I'd love to explore if you're willing. Absolutely. So one of them, I, I just on your Facebook page today, and you had recently posted that you've pretty much stopped doing music, and. You know, it sounds like you, you, that was your first love. It was something you put a lot of heart and soul and time and practice into. Um, I'm, I'm curious about where, where music, uh, what, what the importance of music has been for you and, and what's going on now. I, got, I definitely get into the, the complications of my artistic side, and I think in Chapter 3 of my book, Okay. Um, give a little bit into it. I associated, I was naturally gifted to music. I taught myself piano like Beethoven and Chopin when I was in high school. Um, I was drawn to classical music at the same time I was drawn to hard rock and heavy metal. I ended up fusing the two over 20 years of being a musician. And the last five since I retired from music um, for purposes of I just didn't really want to live the lifestyle anymore. Uh, you're constantly, I was constantly surrounded by drinking and drugs. And it just, it's just, it, it took the fun out of it for me because I was sober. Mm. Uh, one of my good buddies always talks about how, you know, really creative people, when they go sober, they lose their, their artistic, you know, like they, uh, and I'm referring to like in, in you know you know heavy metal you know hard rock people tend to typically when they go sober like they lose their creativity and their they lose their fire and their edge and like the albums they put out are more cookie cutter or whatever you want to think of that for me I I mean I went from playing for the first 15 years I went from playing no less than five hours a day, somewhere sometimes 10 to 15. I mean, music was my life. Mm. To now I play less than 10 to 15 minutes per week. Uh, I'm just not inspired. I, compl- I completely lost all the creativity I had when I became sober. And I just, I guess I just kind of moved on because I said, I'm an all or nothing kind of person. So if music is something that I'm working on, for instance, I, I can play many different styles of music. Like for, like I, uh, I still I still do a little writing, but I do it mostly in my head. So at the moment, I'm I'm composing some uh, some symphony type stuff, uh, like soundtrack music, like you would hear in like a big battle. You know, you know, two gargantuan forces colliding. That's the, like that that epic sort of symphonic music. Uh, that's stuff I compose, and I have the ability to do it. I just don't ever sit down at the keyboard and write it, but I write it in my head. On top of that, I, I you know I have you know you know blues. I'm a big blues fan, and I keep thinking, man, I I just wish I could have the uh, the energy to put together a little blues trio and just play around here in Austin. Uh, I, I'm way past the point of being tempted by drinking or drugs now, so I probably could enjoy it because I could probably get some people giving me some accolades for, you know, ripping some Stevie Ray Vaughan's down, you know, guitar riffs, but I just can't get motivated to try to play with anyone because my efforts and focus are on helping save animals and helping, and helping people 
find answers to their life. And then, you know, on top of that, you know, hoping to, you know, help save the world from the, the, the crises that we face if uh, we keep living such a destructive lifestyle as humans. So when I look at it in that perspective, music has very little time uh, on my priority list um, because for me, music is more of a, of a self-expression. And I feel that for me, it doesn't really work to go out there and do things that are going to make myself feel good when I need to be out there doing things that are helping the world in some way. For some reason, I haven't been able to discern. And also, you know, it's a I struggle. You know, I mean, I, I and I still work a minimum wage job, and I, you know, I write, and I have these speaking gigs that are starting to line up for next year. But I, I honestly, I don't have the resources. Like if I had a, you know, something where I was making more income, possibly, you know, I would be able to, to devote a little more time. But I'm constantly having to struggle to get money to pay bills. That at the end of the day, there's just there's no room to write or anything. Maybe one day I'll get back into it. Maybe when I retire in 20, 30 years, maybe I'll sit down and put that blues band together I was thinking about. Maybe get into Hollywood and you know write some scores for movies. Who knows? I'm, I'm not going to say I'll never do it. There, although a few years ago, I did say that. But now I have a more open mind that eh, once I get the priorities that I'm working on now, which are really, really important to me, and important in what I feel could be important to others. You know, once that's all done, you know, maybe I'll be able to sit down and start making music again. But it's uh, it's just it's just not there anymore. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if you were looking for um, a little more hope and positivity with it, but there really there really is none. This is this is this is one of the darker things in my life that I struggle with. Oh, well, it's the acceptance of my creative ambition for making music. Um, I'm not the kind of person that can just sit and play guitar for, you know, a party. The I all lives have to be on me. Uh, because it's like, if, if I'm, music is like talking to somebody. Um, and, and no one wants to have a conversation where people are checking their phones and looking around and being distracted, <laughs> looking to see if there's someone else to talk to. It's for me to relate it the same way as music. If I've got something to say, believe me, I've done the things to make sure that I command your attention. The tattoos, the, the big beard, you're drawn to me naturally, and you're going to probably hear what I have to say. Same thing with playing guitar. You know, I just, um, it's, it's a selfish thing for me, so I just, I just don't go there. Okay. Well, th- I mean, you know, I, I didn't have an expectation about a, uh, any particular answer, but I really... <laughs> I, I appreciate your your honesty and vulnerability about where it is. I mean, as as I you know, not knowing you well at all, but um, you know, imagining kind of the the life transformation you've had. I'm imagining that a lot of your tastes have changed, and there there's probably a lot of places where you know you've. I know you know I for myself I I had sort of a midlife crisis in my early 40s, and there were days when I woke up. And I didn't know what I liked. Like I had never, I had never been asked that question. Really, I had never been given the choice. Like, who are you? What do you care about? What do you prefer? It felt like everything pretty much had been programmed into me. And when I kind of woke up from that, it was like you know being a baby. And it's been you know seven, eight years that I've had to sort of bring myself up 
So I'm, you know, from my own perspective, that's what I'm hearing a little bit in, in some of the aspects of your story. Well, well, I'm, I'm glad that you found a way and that you found, that you it. found your purpose. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a long, know, it's a long journey and it's not a straight line, right? I guess, <laughs> hell no, it's not a straight line. It is the most, I mean, it's, yeah, it is the squiggliest, you know, most detour path ridden, you know, geographical description to describe how it all works. And, uh, you know, you meet people and, you know, like for me, like, you know, the way I look at someone like you, I view someone like you as like incredibly successful, like they've got their stuff together, you know, but yet I would have never known had, you know, had you not told me that you were, you know, struggling to find your identity, your purpose. Um, because I, you don't know until someone opens their mouth, you know, uh, a lot of people, I guess you just think they just go through the, the, I'm not good at hiding, at hiding what's going on. I, I'm a very vocal person. So people can tell when I'm not in the right place. Other people, I guess it's just, they have that survival skill set. They can get up and go to work. They can do the things they need to do and they can internalize the, the lack of, you know, life they have, you know, um, I was never good at doing that. So I learned from people like you who, you know, well, you know, when I say you, I'm not trying to put you and me on a separate fence. It's just that, you know, I, I, I imagine you have probably done things like pay your bills on time through life. And you probably, you know, you know, owned a home. And I'm just assuming that based off of, you know, you have this successful podcast and I, you know, you're a very recognized name. So I assume that you've done the things that I haven't done. And therefore, I have to make that distinction that, you know, I um, sometimes I wish, Howard, I could have just done it right. Like the, the way that you're, you know, as an American, you're, you're conditioned to you, you wake up, you, you go to college, you, you, you get a job, you start a family. Sometimes I wish I could have just had that because sometimes the pain and the struggle was just so pointless to me that I guess I would have taken a life that was very different and stereotypical. So I'm not saying that that's, that's how everyone should be, but I definitely didn't have those ambitions. And now I'm getting to that point to where, oh, man, I just wish I had a little stability. Uh, but you know what? That's, that's not how my life worked out. It became a struggle. And as long as I can use that to help others, to help alleviate the suffering of animals and to make the world a better place for everyone to live in, then brother, my mission at the end of the day is fulfilled and I'm a happy guy. Right. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of telling myself in my head that you, had you like done all the quote, right things from the beginning, you'd be having some other kind of crisis right now. Cause you'd be part of the system. <laughs> you'd be part of the system that's, uh, that, that's exploiting our world. Right. Think about all the people who went to college, wow. who have good jobs, nice houses. And we're, you know, we're basically this culture is basically killing the planet with all these people who are following all the rules. Right. It's not. It's and not, one sentence right the, there, you just gave not, my life and struggle more merit than I, that I typically will give it, you know, myself. So that's beautiful what you just said. That's that, And it's the truth. Uh, I mean, I guess we're all on our journeys together. 
Yep, and I think you're, you know... Strangely, though, it's, it's, still, it's still strange to me how I think that, you know, for instance, I could help a banker in some way, because at the end of the day, after I help him feel more confident, you know, what's he going to do with that? But that, that's, that's uh, just got to go out there and and inspire others and be, and, you know, leave a positive trail everywhere you go and just hope it has a ripple effect. And, uh... Maybe that banker, you know, feels good and his confidence is up and he gives a tip, like, like maybe he gives a good tip to a, you know, a waitress who's a single mom and maybe that, uh, that single mom feels a little happier. So she does something good for, you know, her kid because she got that extra tip. So she's able to get her kid a DVD. He's the one, the kid as a result is happier. He, he, uh, you know, does better on a, a school project. He gets an accolade. He inspires some other kid who's struggling in school and maybe that, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like that ripple effect just keeps going and going just one positive change. That's the way I have to think that the world works. It'll just, it'll just keep rippling through and, uh, and making it a better experience for everyone. Yeah. Well, I, th- I, I, I agree completely. I think we're, you know, it's, it's the operating system that makes all the difference. If the operating system is love, then everything's going to start moving in the right direction. Which, Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. Which is what I wanted to. I wanted to sort of bring this back full circle, and I'd love to talk to you about animals, because we've we've talked about it abstractly, but you don't feel abstractly about animals, about you know the the chickens and the cows, and I know you talked about bunnies on the, some of the other interviews that I've I've read and and heard of yours. <laughs> T- tell me about animals. Yeah. Um. I guess, um, you know, I never gave much consider, uh, consideration growing up to the fact that, like, you know, I love my dog more than anything, but yet I could easily go eat, you know, 40, 50 chicken McNuggets. Um, that disconnection between eating one animal and, and, and loving and pampering the other one is just, it's, it, you know, I've heard the term thrown around that's, you know, speciesism. And it's, it's very much something that's ingrained and conditioned into our society. And it's, and it's not your fault. It's, it's the system's fault. It's the system that needs a complete overhaul and, and uh, rewriting. Uh, as humans, we're fallible and we're easily manipulated and we like, things to stay a certain way. We don't like to be challenged. Um, well, at least uh, I guess people like me do, but you know, I think most people don't like to be challenged or think about, you know, where their energy goes and like the effect it has on, on others, especially animals. Like people like take care of humans before you take care of animals. You know, there's this mindset, there's all kinds of counter arguments to, to veganism and, you know, being an animal lover, uh, I've, you know, for instance, there's many people who, you know, you know, have fundraisers for the dogs, um, you know, stray dog association or, you know, kitten save or save the whales. And yet they're serving, you know, as part of their fundraiser, they're serving like hamburgers and hot dogs. And there's an extreme disconnect there that I've spent the last six years of my life investigating why it's there. And I mean, it's a really interesting subject. But it's just what I've learned is just consistent, telling people the truth, 
not sugarcoating it, but making it, you know, palatable for people to swallow. It's all about the presentation. The way I look at animals is that they're my friends. Um, they can't speak for themselves. They have a voice, but it comes out moo or oink or some other high-pitched shriek that feels pain, that feels suffering, that has, you know, a lot of the same characteristics we do as humans, family structure, um, you know, love, you know, grief. Um, but as humans, we can be absolute downright bullies and not care, and whether it's for someone making a profit off it or it's someone who's like, oh, I don't really give a crap about that. I just want my steak. Just leave me alone. Let me eat my steak. This possession mentality people have over protein that's stolen. Like when you're eating an animal, that's stolen protein. It wasn't yours. It didn't belong to you. never did. It belongs to that animal that walks on four legs or that hops around on two. And in the animal kingdom, you know, people say, well, other animals eat other animals. Um, so that's what I do. And the, there's all these little disconnects that I'm trying to always find a good answer to. And I, uh, it's just, in thinking about it, 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 I'm constantly faced with thinking more and more about animals and how similar they really are to us as humans. But the thing is, is that we have the ability to be their guardian, not ownership over them, not dominion over them. But we have the ability to be guardians over those who are less you know, vocal, who are less powerful than us. Um, well, I can't really say less powerful because if you stick a human being with no tools or weapons in the room with, you know, even a baby animal, most likely it's going to kick butt. <laughs> you know, we can only take dominion over animals with sharpened tools and bullets and, uh, and, and mass, mass uh, industrialization uh, creations to herd them through um, and use their own psychology against them. I just, man, I just, I, I can't look at myself in the mirror and and think that I can have any kind of power over something that experiences the same emotions I do to family, to having a mother, to having a sister. Um, whether their thought process is exactly like ours or not, it's it's not... It's never, never our right to have dominion or power over it. We, as humans, are the guardians over that animal kingdom. We biologically are not adapted to eating meat. Our, our tooth are, are about as are good for tearing apart broccoli. They're not meant for ripping the hide off of a carcass. Um, so once you get past those arguments, then you can make a break to the people. I think they start to see animals very much like themselves. And that's what I try to do. I, I, I try to, to show people the, the, the human side of, of animals to, to make it, because you really, I think you really can get to them that way. And all I want is for people to experience the truth. Go about your business after I've told you the truth as the way I see it. But the way I see it is if you love your dog, if you love your cat, if you love your pigeon, whatever, 
but yet you can go to Chick-fil-A and get a chicken sandwich. There's there's some work on the interior that needs to be done, and you des- and you deserve to have it exposed to you at least once. From there, you can make a decision to go back to that lifestyle where you're not challenged, where you're not thinking, where you could probably develop some health issues, and you know, literally, you can't say that you're doing as much for the planet and for the animals as the next person who's not eating meat. This is sorry. There's ac- there's absolutely no way to say you're doing anything better. I'm not. That's not saying that a vegan is a better person. But when you look at it on a scale, if you're doing as little harm as possible, then you're doing more than someone who's not doing that much. And but if you do get that experience, and I say that I think everyone deserves that. But I, I, man, I was a 500 pound pro wrestler. And I had my world ripped apart for me. One of the tattoos on my arm is barbecue sauce because I was known as a barbecue brisket dude. I mean, that was my life. Barbecue was my, I had a band at one time, you know, uh, but it's got a bad word in it, but it was, it was called, you know, hog, I'll just say it was hog shit barbecue. That was the name of a band that I had at one time because Meat was my life, and it was ripped out of my hands and out of my heart forever because my guard was down, and I'm so glad that it happened. If I was able to have that experience and it saved my life, I feel like everyone has to ch- should have the opportunity to experience the, the lie of the disconnection to the animal kingdom at least once in their life. Then they can make their decisions for how they want to live the rest of their life. But people like me, people like us, people like in our community, we're going to continue to expose the myths and just put the truth in front of you so you can just see that your ripple effect, when you don't make a conscious choice about your food, that ripple effect is just, it's it's not good for your, uh, your karma or it's not good for it's not good for the world, and uh, that's that's the way I view animals. They're they're cute, they're fuzzy, they're they're our friends, and um, I just don't think that we have any right over deciding their fate, and especially to industrialize them for you know corporate profit. I mean, that, those are the people that, that need some butt kickings, man. And I'm be the first to volunteer to step into a, a professional wrestling ring with any of those people because it has to be legal, you know. <laughs> I'd I body slam anyone for the animals if it just helps get a breakthrough that what you're doing is wrong. I just, um, uh, I wish that everyone could see animals the way I see them. And I'm going to make it my life's mission to make sure that I do the best job I can possible to make people at least at least have their, their heart open for their first time but like I did. I just I think everyone deserves that at least once. So I love animals. Yeah, I hear that. And, and, and in the quest of trying to understand why I love animals, I've discovered more about myself and more about the way there's so many problems in this world because of the way we treat animals. 
And that would have to be saved for a completely other discussion because that is, that, I mean, that, that you start getting into some really complex stuff. But uh, I, um, this is all, I'm alive today because I decided to care for animals. And that's the truth. Yeah, I mean, when you were talking about you know helping people see animals um, like themselves to kind of break down the differences and the barriers and the disconnect, I was thinking back to the beginning of our conversation when you were talking about your own challenges with loving yourself. And it seems like f- for you, loving animals was was not so much to see that animals are like you, but to see that you you are like animals that that you have a um, a sort of an innocent, vulnerable, loving, peaceful side. It's, it's, it almost feels like they taught you how to love yourself. Absolutely. If a, if another, I mean, this is going to sound silly to some people, but if, a, if an alien species from another planet that was bigger and stronger and had more technology than us came to the planet and decided to harvest us and turn us into... You know, for no better, you know, for lack of better words, like cattle, and herd us through the harvesting fields to get whatever it was they needed out of us, whether it was our protein or our blood or whatever. I guarantee you that if someone was, like, if some ultimate power was there and said, okay, this is a taste of what you could have or you could change your ways today, I guarantee you that most people would, would become a vegan overnight. Mm-hmm. Just knowing that that hypothetical situation could stand because that's the only way some people would ever be able to 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 put down their belief structure to 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 love animals and and experience the the break in that disconnection um, that that almost would be the only way to get through to some people um, so you have to see animals like you see yourself. I have to do that. I, I mean, I, mean I, I could never, ever, I, I mean, I don't care if I was starving. There's no way, you know, being here in, in you know, Ted Nugent country, you know, where everyone's shooting deer and drinking beer, uh, you know, literally you come up with these, these, these young guys will come up to me and they'll, they'll say, you know, I like what you do. I want to eat less meat. I want to eat more vegetables. I want to be a healthier person. But then they, but then they're with that that Ted Nugent survivalist. What happens if the world goes to hell, and uh, you know we have to eat animals? I said, <laughs> this is the, these are the questions that I'm faced with. I'm always trying to come up with better better answers. But as of right now, my answer to that is, well, if you're able to find a deer, most likely whatever it's eating will give your body nourishment too. So find that instead of, you know, eating the deer. I mean, it's just a little common sense you have to use. If uh, if there's still plants for animals to eat, then there's still plants for humans to eat. And, uh, yeah, it might not be as convenient, but I don't like to live in hypothetical situations because that's not the real world. That's not what we're facing now. We're facing, you know, uh, a, a, you know a, a terrible terrible man-made event of the extinction of, you know, many species of animals, billions of animals being slaughtered for, you know, Thanksgiving dinners and, uh, you know, gatherings with mom, you know, 
and we don't even think about it. We don't even question it. We don't even ask why we do what we do. And it's not it's not our fault. It's it's the system's fault and it's it's the individual's disconnection that will keep them from ever examining and experience that stuff. So my job as a four hundred pound redneck from hell who cares is to make sure that I open your eyes and your heart so you can feel it at least once and then I'll leave you alone. You go about your day and if you decide that you do want to make a change, well, I've been through the ringer. I've answered every question that I could possibly think of that you've probably thought of. So now I can I can tell you how to do it. And as a result, you're going to do things. You're going to have more energy. You're going to probably save some money. You know, you're going to um, you're going to inspire others. And it's just it's, it's this whole great package of when you become a, a, a person that lives and drives off of plants. Uh, man, it's just, it's a complete whole package that I think if most people just gave it the opportunity, they would, uh, they would see so many positive changes in their life. And that's what I'm, that's my mission. Right on. Right on. So, so Mike, for people who want to follow you, who don't want this interview to be the last they, they hear from you and get inspired by you, where can they go to stay in touch? Um, as of right now, I'm in the process of, of remaking over my blog, which is bigballsmike.com. Uh, it, it's going to be an all-inclusive website. You know, since I'm still, like I said, I'm 75% done writing my book. Uh, you know, I had a lot of people who uh, supported a book campaign to to help me fund the book and get it written because I was able to devote like three months straight, and that's what I lived off of. I lived off that book so I could get the majority of it done. And then now the last 25%, I'm, I'm waiting on a few things. I have a, I have a potential uh, reality TV show. There's some documentaries being featured in. One of them is called The Game Changers, and it is going to really revolutionize the way men uh, think about meat and their identity for being strong and tough and I was so honored that they came and interviewed me for that. My good friend uh, Joseph Pace who has, he's helped me through this book writing process the whole way and his his partner in the film James Wilkes who was you know the ultimate fighter winner of season 9 of the ultimate fighter show and uh, you know high level you know badass when it comes to martial arts you know training elite military forces and there's all kinds of other you know, larger-than-life characters of, of men that are doing this and that are doing this for the same reasons as me. They're, they want to be a hero and make a change for the world. They want to take action. This documentary, once it comes out, is going to, it's going to change the world, and I think it's going, to be, it's going to be what we need to get to that next level of evolution as, as humans. Now, that being said, I... You know, we'll probably do some appearances with that. I, that documentary, uh, the director is the director from uh, The Cove and a new documentary called uh, Race and Extinction. And uh, you know, Louis Sihoyos, I think I said his name right. Anyways, uh, I'm gearing up for 2015, so I have a lot of stuff. Since I'm waiting for that documentary to come out, I'm being hesitant on... I'm I'm still trying to make up my mind where and and how I'm going to update my website right now. So that's a long-winded answer to that. That's just so I'm just keeping you 
this won't be the last to hear me. There's a lot of good stuff coming as of right now. Follow either my Facebook page, which is uh, Mike Crockett. Um, uh, I don't know how to put the link to that. Maybe you do. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, put a link. But if people just search for, for Mike Crockett, then that's with two T's at the end. Yes, yeah, and you can't miss my photo. It's me covered in tattoos with vegan written across it, wearing sunglasses. And then, you know, my blog, Baseball Mike, by Christmas time, I should have it updated and ready to follow. And it'll be over the course of 2015, it'll just be added to more and more and more. And, uh, like, as I set up this platform for being able to, you know, be a to be a resource for anyone that wants to, you know, make the change. So that's, uh, that's where to follow me right now. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to be speaking at all the whole foods in Austin throughout the month of January and February. So if you're in the Austin area, uh, be sure to check those dates. Uh, I think the 17th, I speak at the flagship store in Lamar, and that's where I'm going to be doing kind of a two-hour lecture, kind of what we're doing right now. I'm going to share my story and answer questions as Whole Foods and Engine 2 uh, Diet do this this uh, joint collaboration, this 30-day challenge for people. Um, so I'm just now getting started on creating these platforms to help people. So just stay tuned, and I promise I'm going to be delivering some good stuff, and hopefully my book will be, you know, you know, being picked up by a publisher here in the next few months, and we'll get that out so people can start reading some details on some of the crazy things that I've told you today. And uh, thank you very much again for the opportunity to allow me to share all this, Howard. I really appreciate it. Well, Mike, I'm so honored that you said yes, and that uh, this is actually, I believe, the longest interview I've ever done. And I I'm sure we could go on for several more hours, but out of out of deference to the to the listeners, I hope no one has a commute this long. <laughs> so I hope this is a you know morning and evening listen. But Mike, it is such an honor and a pleasure, you know, from 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 seeing you and seeing at first all the differences, and then getting to know you a little bit, and then over this call to see all the all the commonalities. Um, it really. Um, it's, it's an honor to be, uh, standing shoulder to shoulder with you or, um, you know, shoulder to belly button with you as we, <laughs> as, as we try to heal this world. So Mike, thank you so much. Likewise, my friend, thank you very much, Howard. And thank you for all those who have taken the time to listen to this. Let's, uh, let's all make a positive change for the world starting now together. Right on. Be well, Mike. You too, Howard. We'll talk soon, man. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, I hope that you really got a lot out of that interview with Big Bald Mike, Mike Crockett. I hope you got as much out of it as, as I did, as I have. And just give you a quick word as to what's coming up on the podcast in the next couple of weeks. We have um, one of Mike's mentors, Robert Cheek, whom he mentioned in the conversation, um, had a great conversation with him, which I'll be publishing uh, fairly soon, about not having excuses, about not letting yourself off the hook. And it's kind of a great uh, counterpoint and in, in, in many ways speaks to Mike's story and the ways in which he turned himself around. Also have an interview 
um, with Susan Levin, who is Director of Nutritional Research at the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. We talk about her childhood in Alabama, uh, again, echoes of, of Mike's story, uh, growing up in a culture where eating healthy food was simply not on the menu, and her journey to, to health and to advocating for the truth in, in uh, teaching people how to eat and in changing government policy. That will be fun as well. Also, a little bit different, not a, a, a non-nutritional podcast coming up with my friend Kerry Kay, who is a longtime student of various forms of healing, including energy healing, including some things that uh, insurance isn't likely to pay for anytime soon, and stuff that I'm pretty skeptical about. And except one day she came over and worked on me when I had a uh, problem, and it kind of turned me into a believer, at least for, for her skill set and her abilities. So you'll hear all about that coming up in an upcoming episode. Holidays are continuing, so I wish everyone, uh, if you're traveling, safe travels. If you're getting together with uh, friends and family, keep it real, keep it loving, and be well, my friends.